The following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Today, have Rabbi Grossman say, give a presentation about Jewish medical ethics, and then Rebecca Lonsdorf will give a presentation about contemporary bioethics, and then we'll have the two of them together discussing some contemporary issues and how the two different systems approach it. So Rabbi Grossman, the show is all yours. You just think, Shell, are you leaving? Are you leaving? No, I'll say that. Don't fall asleep on me. That's, that's so don't fall asleep. Yeah, that's job, not mine. So first of all, just to get a, a better understanding, are we potential medical students here? Or? Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so when Shelley was speaking that we're friends for many years, he was speaking about for himself, not necessarily for me. <laughs> but, uh, um, so... What I'm going to f- try to focus on today is actually uh, originally the schedule was the other professor was supposed to come in to discuss secular medical ethics, and then I was supposed to contrast that with Jewish medical ethics. Um, but since I'm here first, so we'll try to give you a, put it all in. She'll be here, I believe, on Thursday. So the first thing to understand is when we talk about Jewish medical ethics, the, a lot of the principles we're going to discuss, some of them are limited to Judaism per se, but the goal, the general contrast I'd like to talk about is more the difference between religious ethics and as opposed to secular ethics. Um, and not necessarily limited to Judaism because we're not here to push Judaism. Um, it happens to be I'm Jewish. I happen to know the most about that religion. Um, but in general, many of the principles um, as we'll see, or the contrasts apply to many different uh, religions. Uh, not necessarily the rules, but the, but the, the contrast between secular and religious ethics. So first of all, we, as we know, we live in, we're living in spectacular times, um, and the technology which is available, specifically in medicine, is, is just unbelievable how basically every two years we have to reset on everything we've known until now, and there's constant changes in how we apply um, <laughs> how we apply uh, um, ethics to medicine in the sense of things are constantly changing. And one of the key things, as we're going to see, in many religions, and Judaism amongst them, has a, a clear host of moral and ethical laws um, which can be applied to many of these scenarios. Okay. Um, where when we're talking about uh, Judaism in general and many of the religions of the world, we have the Bible. That's the basis for it. And then there's Judaism, what we call oral law, which is there are 63 volumes of the Talmud, known as the Talmud, which um, are known as the oral law, which in a certain sense are interpreting the written law. And many of those do discuss ethical questions, um, especially as it relates to medicine. Um, but... Uh, as we're going to see, the question is how does that ha- how does that work when the the corpus we're using for the law was written almost two thousand years ago or more, and the contemporary issues that arise really have nothing obviously didn't exist then they couldn't even have imagined many of the technologies that we have today, such as the um, let's say surrogate motherhood or even ventilators, end of life issues, beginning of life issues. They, they didn't even have that ability then. Um, for many of these contemporary dilemmas. So we have to, the real question is how to apply the 
those ancient ethics and moral morals that we have to contemporary issues. Um, so we'll talk about that. By the way, feel free to ask questions. Stop me if you don't like something I say. Um, okay, so everyone has one of these. So in general, just to define um, what is what is uh, ethics? What's an ethics consultation? One of the things I do is, um, part of besides teach, I actually am, am consulted many times by patients, by patients' families, by hospitals, physicians, um, with dilemmas that come up. Uh, and the, and uh, they have ethical questions coming up with medical cases. So the definition, just to understand what it means um, when we say healthcare ethics, what that means. So I put there on number one, says, this is from the American Society for Bioethics. This is a service provided by an individual group to help patients, families, surrogates, healthcare providers, or other involved parties address uncertainty or conflict regarding value-laden issues that emerge in healthcare. Okay, so again, there's so many, especially with the new technology, so many um, issues that arise. Um, and this is not only for healthcare professionals, this is also as families today. If anyone ever has had um, someone sick in their family, an ill person or an elderly grandparent, or um, you know that there are many issues that arise just on your average hospital visit, um, especially the, um, when someone's very ill, especially at end of life issues, or if someone had a preemie or things like that, there are literally a host of issues that can arise with, with any time someone checks into a hospital. Um, so this is something that you need to have either an ethicist, a, someone who, whether that ethicist is a religious person, a secular person, someone who can guide, again, the families of the patients, the patients themselves, and of course the medical professionals to make decisions, um, because many times, as we're gonna see, these decisions are not medical decisions. Um, they're, they're, we're taking the medical facts and then trying to ascertain what is the better route. You have two things, we can do this procedure or this procedure, which one do we do? There's a risk involved in the procedure. There's a, if we operate on this patient, um, there's a 60% chance the patient's gonna die. If we don't operate, then he's surely gonna die. Do we take the risk and, and risk the short-term life um, versus long-term life? Have a risk, risk, risk him dying on the operating table okay, um, as opposed to um, dying in three years from now. So how do you measure these, these risks? Things like that, questions like that, which are not, it's not a medical question. The medical facts are clear. These are the numbers the doctor presents to the ethicist, and the ethicist then has to decide, um, what do we do in this case, to decide that moral dilemma. So we're, we're not talking about medical questions. Medical questions and medical decisions are, of course, left to the physician or the medical professional. The question here is the moral dilemma after the medical facts are presented, how exactly do we make that decision? Okay, so um, I'm gonna discuss some of the differences between secular and religious ethics. Okay, so um, I'm gonna leave there, there's, um, I put down here actually the four um, major pillars of Western medical ethics, secular Western medical ethics, but I'm gonna leave that for Professor Lundstruff when she comes to describe that to you because uh, that's, that's really her job. She is a secular medical ethicist. I'm gonna try to sort of contrast the two in principle. So number one is um, when you're dealing with secular ethics, okay, I once heard this from an actually an ethicist. He said today to be an ethicist, what does that mean? Um, to be an ethicist, how do you make your decisions? How does one make their decisions? What would you say? How does one make a decision as an ethicist?
take a shot. Don't worry. Okay. Won't be tested on. I don't know if people get other decisions that have been made or like what? Take a look at precedents. Yeah. Okay. But how do we know those precedents were correct? <laughs> There's anyone else? Determining which. An immoral dilemma comes up in a, in a medical, a decision has to be made. Should we do this procedure or not? Okay, like I said before, let's say it's a risk to the person. Um, major risk to the person, he's 95 years old. If we, there's a good chance he's going to die at the end of the operation. If we don't do something to him, just giving that as an example of a moral dilemma. So, how, how would one go about making such a decision? So, in the secular world, there's principles of ethics, and as we see, like I put here that chart, I forgot to read. Surely, I, with my eyes, I can't read it. But if you look there, there are four pillars in uh, in um, secular ethics, and most of the decisions will be based upon those those aspects and um, of medical ethics. Now, what? Uh, the, the issue is, really, as we're, as we're seeing here, there's no definite answer. Because you can go, and I've had this experience in Houston, as we know, we have one of the biggest medical centers down the block in the world, and you can go to one hospital, attend an ethics conference, same question, pose this ethical dilemma, this moral dilemma to the ethics committee of the hospital, um, they'll make one decision, and then you can go down the block to another hospital, pose the same ethical dilemma, they might have a different decision. <laughs> Okay, because there's no, it's a very subjective, secular ethics um, really doesn't supply a definite answer, it's very subjective. Depends on who the ethicist is, depends on his political leanings, his, uh, you know, where he stands in society, is he a liberal, is he, is he a conservative, you know. People have different world views, and based on that person's world views, that's how obviously the decision factors will affect that decision. Um, if the hospital is a religious hospital, then they might have a, priest on the ethics committee, they might have a rabbi, they might have a, um, whatever it is, um, may, helping with those decisions. But you also, of course, you can have the legal uh, person at the ethics committee, because legal legality is, of course, always a big factor. Um, what are the patient's rights? Um, who gets to decide? Is it the patient? Is it the, the ethics committee? Is it the hospital? Is it the physician? So all these factors come into play, and therefore you might, it's very subjective, you might have different decisions. Um, I once, like I started saying before, I once heard from an ethicist. He said, "Today, to be an ethicist, it takes really two things. You need two two major criteria. One is you have to uh, have a lot of chutzpah. You know what chutzpah means, right? You gotta you gotta be able to sometimes make a decision against the family's wishes, or against the hospital's wishes. That's number one. Okay. Number two is you have to be a good poll taker, because unfortunately, and, and this most of our ethics today, or lots of our ethics today." are based on society. Ethicists look at society, and they're really a reflection of society. So what might have been unethical 10 or 20 or t 20 years ago or 30 years ago, today, and this, is, this applies to all ethics, not just to medical ethics, society has changed, okay? Um, society is, uh, some might view it as advanced, others might view it, view it as we're going backwards, depending again from which perspective you're viewing it as. But society clearly changes over the years, um, for example, just to give a good medical ethics example would be um, removing a patient from a ventilator. Okay, 20 years ago, in, in the end of the 80s, even mid-80s, if a doctor 
um, as we know, Jack Kevorkian um, went to jail for this. He, if a doctor took a patient, removed the patient off a ventilator, patient who was um, in a vegetative state and, and removed him from a ventilator, which basically is going to die because he's not able to breathe without the ventilator, he would be tried, he technically could be tried for murder, as Jack Kevorkian was at the time. Today, um, which is a mere probably 20 years later, or not even, um, if you don't take it as a physician in many hospitals, if you don't take a patient off a ventilator, in many cases you're considered, uh, you, you're, you have no mercy. Today we call it mercy killing. Society has changed and we now view, let's say, a patient um, who 20 years ago you might have been charged for murder. Today, if you remove him from, if the doctor refuses to remove him from the ventilator, or if the family refuses, they're looked at cruel. Why are you putting this person through suffering, letting him live this life where there's no quality of life? Let's let him die in peace. Let him die with dignity. And let him die um, without, be, without suffering. Okay? So if you don't do it today, um, and I've had cases like that, you're actually you're viewed as a cruel person. So what changed from the, in the last 20 years? The ethics changed only because society has changed. Today we view keeping people alive on a ventilator as cruel. 20 years ago, if you took them off the ventilator, it was murder. So, so the, the line is forever changing. It's very subjective. Secular ethics is subjective in that sense where things, society changes and therefore the ethicist now has to change his views based on society, okay? Um, so that's one example, okay? Um, the, as opposed to when you're dealing with religious ethics, and is what I want to point out, the contrast, the secular ethics with religious ethics and whatever religion you're talking about, um, and every religion has some form of medical ethics, um, some more than others, obviously, but the, the decision, the moral dilemmas are objective in the sense of um, it's whatever that religion decides. Let's say we're talking about beginning of life. When does life begin? So if Catholicism says life begins at conception, so then that's not, that's not a medical decision for them. That's when they say life begins. If they say life ends at cessation of brain function, um, so then life is over at that point. So this is a very objective um, views as to applying and applying those views to medicine. So it's not uh, going to be um, just, you know, let's see what society thinks at this point in time. Obviously, as a human being, you're going to be affected by society. Even an ethicist, even religious ethicists, of course, are affected. But again, the principles, the underlying principles they're using do not change. So for example, in Judaism, I can only speak for that because that's what I know about. Um, we believe the Torah was a God-written document. That's the, the Old Testament. And therefore, whatever it says in there, it doesn't change. Just because society has changed, just because technically that document was written 3,000 years ago, doesn't change the ethics. So if at, at 2,000 years ago, because um, again, because we're, we're saying this is what God wrote it, so to speak. So if 2,000 years ago it stated that the beginning of life was at birth, not at conception, so nothing changed. So just because society might have a different view, or 2,000 years ago, the, de the definition of, let's say, time of death, of when a, when a person is, is considered dead, according to the Old Testament, was at cessation of heart function. So it doesn't change today because society changed. It stays the same. Okay, so um, the morals of a religion, supposedly, are not supposed to change. Um, I'm assuming that's the same for all religions. Okay, so, so that's a key difference you have between 
um, secular ethics and religious ethics is secular ethics are always going to be relative um, as opposed to religious-based ethics, Torah, in this case Torah-based ethics, Torah is the, is the Hebrew term for the Old Testament, um, are, are not going to be relative. Okay, they're going to be static and they're never going to change um, no matter where society goes. And obviously this is a problem, especially if you're a rabbi, because you're living in a society where the world, the pendulum is swinging completely the other way for many issues. Um, and what do you do? How, do, how does, as in, in, actually I think we're going to discuss this more with Rebecca when she's here, how does, how does someone deal with that when um, you have your guidebook for morals and society is a completely different place? And we're living in a modern society. So, how do, how do you how do you fit that those ethics and those morals with society at large? Um, again, because obviously, if you're a man of principle, if you're a man of faith, you can't change those. You can't change your mind. And say, okay, you know, today society's at a different place, and we're going to take a poll, and now people want to change the rules. So that doesn't work like that. You know, if I would do that, I'd lose my job. Um, so, so I can't. So you can't change the morals. Again, it's a question of applying those same morals um, and ethics and those same principles from 2,000 years ago to contemporary times and how we fit them in. So that's a key, that's one of the key differences between um, Torah-based ethics and uh, biblical ethics versus, um, versus secular ethics. Um, and as you see here, number four, I quote, um, from the Hastings Center report. It says, a central feature of contemporary moral debates is that they're unsettleable, I don't know if that's a word, and inter interminable, because no argument can be carried through to a victorious conclusion. Argument characteristically gives way to the mere and increasingly shrill battle of assertion and counter-assertion. If you watch the Republican debate, you know that's true. Right? So, so clearly you can't decide, there's, no, there's never a clear decision, because it could be a debate. Like I said, you'll have the Ethics Committee of MD Anderson might say one thing, and the Ethics Committee of St. Luke's will decide another thing. So who's right? We don't know. <laughs> right? The people, the physicians in St. Luke's have to listen to their Ethics Committee. If they're operating, if they're doing surgery in St. Luke's, they're going to have to listen to their Ethics Committee. Physicians in MD Anderson are then going to go with their, their Ethics Committee. So who's the correct? Who's correct? We don't know. Um, as opposed to, again, if you're using religion, um, again, I just want to make clear, you might have different rabbis, as there's a Jewish joke, always, you know, you have three rabbis, four opinions, okay, so you might have different opinions as to um, what's ethical, what's moral, but they're not discussing their own personal decision. What they're saying is, this is the way we understand what Judaism says about this, this issue, whatever the issue may be. Okay, so they're not arguing, they're not saying, I believe this is the right thing to do, this is moral. What, what the Jewish ethicist is saying, what the rabbi is saying, um, is this is what I believe the Torah is saying. This is what I believe the Old Testament says about this particular issue. So again, you might have different opinions, but at least they're, they're just, they're interpreting what the, what the Torah says is moral, as opposed to just um, what society in today's day and age might believe is moral. Okay, so that's a key difference. Shall I get anything to add? Agreeing or disagreeing? No, I'm agreeing. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Sure. Thank you. Um, so when a doctor like goes into surgery, there's some sort of decision being made. They do they like never really have any sort of. Say
say, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's always like, okay, the ethics committee says that, like, I'm just going to do it. Well, the, well, depends. Maybe, actually, Dr. Rubin will probably answer the question better than I can, but normally, in, in most, not, in, not every single medical procedure is there going to be an ethical dilemma involved. Obviously, it's only in many extreme cases, usually end of life, beginning of life, um, cases like that where there's a, a life and death question. But in cases like that, so if you are a physician working for a specific hospital mm-hmm. and, and that there is a moral, ethical decision to be made in many cases, that will have to be taken to the ethics committee. Now, I don't know what happens, what are the ramifications if you as a physician decide not to listen to that. I do, I am aware of physicians who have consulted with me who decided they had to leave their hospital because they weren't comfortable with some of the decisions the ethics committee was making. And they, they moved the hospital, they left that hospital. But I don't know, let's say you want to keep your job, and stay in that hospital, how does that work? Well, what, are the ramf- what might be the ramifications? Tell it. Usually, ethics committees get involved. Ethics committees get involved because there's some conflict. Either the doctors aren't happy with what the patient or the family wants, or the family is unhappy with what the doctor or the patient wants, or a real, every now and then a real ethical conundrum comes up where nobody really knows what the right thing is to do, and the patient may, or somebody will ask for a decision. Now, just to contrast, that, that is, then the, you may ask for an ethics consult. Someone who is a clinical ethicist will come by and talk to the parties involved, and go back and maybe talk to the committee and just make an opinion themselves. In the Jewish medical ethics system, just by contrast, again, usually rises out of conflict where somebody doesn't know what the right thing is to do, but then you consult a rabbi, he gives you a decision. You don't ask for his opinion unless you agree up front you will do what he says. With the ethics consultation, their opinion is not binding. But if the ethics committee gets involved and there's some legal ramifications for what you're doing, that's when it really gets sticky. So it just kind of depends. I'll give you one example. Michael DeBakey, you all heard of Michael DeBakey? So Michael DeBakey is 96 years old. Do you mind if I digress for a moment? 96 Please. years old. <laughs> and he comes home one day, he lives right up the street here near, near Rice, and he has this crushing chest pain. Being a cardiovascular surgeon of world renown, he examined himself, decides he's rupturing an aortic aneurysm. Big artery coming out of your heart, thoracic aorta. It starts tearing apart, and you die. And he decides that's what's going to happen. He lies down to die. Doesn't get dead. So it's not completely torn. His wife comes home four hours later and asks him what's going on. He says, I got some indigestion, I'm lying down. Next day he goes to his partner, cardiovascular surgeon, confirms the diagnosis, and they hospitalize him. And as they assume a few weeks to months, this thing gets bigger and it's going to blow. And there's no treatment except surgery, none whatsoever. Michael DeBakey tells the surgeon, his partner of 40 years, you do whatever you think is necessary. Now in the hospital, you when you admit to the hospital, you have to to clear your code stats. If I die, I want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be resuscitated. I only want comfort measures. Anyway, they, the anesthesiologist refused to put the baby to sleep. He's too dangerous. He's 96 years old, with big surgery. <coughs> they won't put him to sleep. 
His partner, George Noon, gets an anesthesiologist from the VA hospital who was trained by DeBakey, brings him to Methodist Hospital to operate. The anesthesiologist say, no you don't, not so fast, and they get an ethics consult. Ethics committee is now debating the proposition that Michael DeBakey, who has a type two DeBakey aneurysm, mm -hmm. he named it, is going to have a surgery invented by, you guessed it, Michael DeBakey, done by his partner, and they want to not have surgery, they don't want to be known as the people that killed Michael DeBakey. His partner wants it to operate on and is ready to go. The ethics committee is discussing this, and clearly the institution is a little concerned. It's an institution that DeBakey built. I didn't explain the issue. The issue is that in 96, the risk of the surgery is probably, I mean, they don't yeah. do surgery ever. Not done on anyone over 70. There's no data. Nobody knows what the survival rate is for this sort right, of thing. But they don't, they don't do it on anyone over 70, I think. It, it's done. 75. It's done. It's very risky surgery. It's risky. The surgery, by definition, is risky. Even if you're not 96, and George Noon's argument was physiologically he's only about 70. He's a very healthy 96-year-old man. So they're debating this in the ethics committee when DeBakey's family bursts into the ethics committee and says, enough of this. We want the surgery done. End of ethics committee. Surgery's done. Yeah, but the doctors, if I remember, in the hospital still refused to do it. They had to get anesthesiologists. Right, they got anesthesiologists. The right. uh, so I'm saying there is, the doctors there were clearly concerned if they would go ahead and not listen to the ethics committee. Right. They obviously had a concern. So what was the ethics committee called for? Because the anesthesiologist thought that the surgeon was making the wrong decision, that the risk of surgery was too high to operate. The surgeon says, if we don't operate, he will die. That's 100% certainty. He will die. If this thing ruptures, there is no treatment. You will die. And he says, so therefore, it's worth taking the risk. And anesthesiology, it's too risky. So there's a, well, zero chance versus whatever chance he has is, I'm going with whatever chance he has. So, but because he's such a celebrity, there was going to be ramifications if he died. Uh, who's responsible for that? Who looks bad? Are there any legal ramifications? So, he lived. He had weakness in his lower extremities, but mentally he was intact. Uh, I interviewed him about two months before he died, and he just said, well, I, I told the surgeon to do what he had to do, he did what he had to do, I'm glad it turned out the way he did. He wouldn't really comment on it. DeBakey himself, by the way, you should know, I think I mentioned this to you, went to train in Nazi Germany, because he said that was the best place to get trained for a cardiovascular researcher. He went there during Hitler's third run. So that's, that's how ethics committees work. Uh, we actually had a conference with um, George Noon, the Bakey, and we had Rabbi Avram Steinberg, whose article you read. And after the conference, George Noon, this very phlegmatic guy, comes over to me and he says, I wish I was dealing with Rabbi Steinberg instead of the ethics committee. Just like that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he came up with wanted his number. He asked, he was so impressed with this type of number that he asked to take and conference him in the committee meetings. The future he got his number. I, mean, Did I, you? I, I don't know if it ever happened. But anyway, so. So that's a, I'm sorry for taking such a long time to answer the question, but you can see the That's difference. an important question. One, you get a decision that you agree up front to abide by, and the other, you get talk. Oh,
And, but usually they do what the ethics committee says, but not always. And when they don't do it, it winds up on the front page to use some crime. I'm serious about that. Okay, so so we'll actually maybe if we have time we'll get to some other cases where I had to go up against hospital ethics committees um, based on you know family consults. But but let's I just want to get some of the underlying principles here of Jewish medical ethics. So another key thing between difference between uh, Judaism and secular ethics, Jewish ethics and secular ethics is Judaism is a religion that ascribes. We grew up in, a, in this great United States of ours, and we're used to everything is about the rights, our rights as a, as a citizen of the country, as a patient, as patient as a bill of patient rights every time you walk into a hospital. We all have rights. So there's a big debate today in our society. Do we have a right to health care? Is health care a right? Is that something we have to be given for free? As we know, and we're not going to go there today. That's, that's, it's all about our society. It's all about rights. What are our rights? Um, again, as patients, as citizens. So in Judaism, it's, there's a whole different perspective. Um, Judaism says you have no rights. Okay? And what does that mean, you have no rights? It just means we live in a society not of rights, but of obligations. Each person has an obligation um, as a human being, and even as a society, and as a physician, to have certain obligations. Okay, again, the question is, as it's, uh, again, this is boils down to the question, what is my, it's not a question of what is my right, it's what is my obligation. Let's say as a physician, what, what is my obligation as a physician? Do I have to heal this person? Do I not have to heal this person? What is my obligation as a patient? Do I have to be healed? Okay, according to Judaism, as we're going to see, there's an obligation to be healed. A person can't say, listen, I have cancer, I either have faith in God and I'm going to, or I just, I don't want to go through the pain of chemotherapy, so I'm not going to get healed. It doesn't work like that in Judaism. You have an obligation to be healed. As we're going to see in the in the Bible itself, um, the Bible obligates one to be healed. Also, as a physician or as any medical professional or even as a human being, if you can save someone's life, you have an obligation to save someone's life. So it's not about rights. It's not about what is my right to have a right to health care. It's irrelevant. That's not. The, it's, it, it could be. I mean, you're looking at semantics, but there's a big key difference as we're going to see, contrasting those two. Um, it's, again, it's, it's, Judaism is. I put down here, ascribes to commitments and obligations, duties and commandments, rather than rights, okay? So therefore, um, a, a physician, for example, physician-patient relationship, I'm on the bottom of page one, is viewed by Judaism as a covenant, in, as a covenant between the patient and the physician. That means it's, an, it's a contractual obligation. Oh, sorry, more than a contractual obligation. It's a covenant, which means me as a physician, if I'm able to save your life, I have to save your life. That's a biblical obligation. Okay, as opposed to, if you turn the page, um, if you look at number nine, where I'm quoting the AMA's statement, number nine on page two, it says, a physician shall in the provision of appropriate patient care accept in emergencies, be free to choose whom to serve, to whom to associate in the environment in which to provide medical services. It's the prerogative of the physician to decide, does he want to treat this patient or not? He could say, I don't want to treat you. You can go somewhere else, as long as you're not contracted. Um, if, if they're already in your office and I don't know exactly how that works at which point is a certain point if they are your patients already then you, then you have to treat them but assuming someone calls me up and says listen doc this is what I got I'd like to come to your office you can say sorry we're full you know we don't, we're not taking any more patients I don't want to treat you go to someone else so that's, that's your prerogative as a physician as opposed to, as we're seeing in Judaism, you can't do that. If you can save someone's life, even not as a medical professional we're going to talk about, 
I'm just as an individual. If you know the Heimlich maneuver, or you're a you know ALS, you're a lifeguard. Someone's drowning, um, even if you're not on duty, right? Or you're in a restaurant, someone's choking. According to Judaism, you have to save that person's life. Very different than in Western society. In Western society, you've all, I'm sure you've all seen that movie scene where they, you know, the, the stewardess is announced, is there any physician on board? You know, the guy's reading his newspaper and he's like hiding behind the newspaper because he doesn't want to treat the person on board. He's, he's relaxing, he's in the middle of his dinner. Or if you're in a restaurant, right, so many times as a physician, you don't want to be bothered. In Judaism, it doesn't work like that. You have an obligation to save that person's life. So like we're saying, even as an individual, as a, as a, non, as a non-medical professional, if you're driving down uh, the street or you're walking on campus and someone collapses, you have an obligation, if, again, assuming you know how to save that person's life, you can have some ability at least to call 911 to do that. You can't just wave to the person and continue on to class, even if you're late. Yeah. Uh, so in the previous example uh, about uh, Tabeki, would his partner Michael Vicky's partner be obligated under this system? Well, well that, that case is different because there's a moral dilemma <coughs> of the risk involved. Meaning, do I, over there you have two sides of the coin. So it's a question of, what do I do? Again, we're risking the Bakey's life by putting him on the operating table at 96 years of age. There's a major risk involved. Again, we don't know the exact numbers, but clearly anytime you put a 96-year-old person under anesthesia, it's a, it's a risk. Um, Many times they don't do surgery on people of that age, any surgery, even for uh, you know, ingrown toenail, because it's dangerous. <laughs> Surely when you're talking about an aortic valve, it's a much greater risk. So over there, there's a moral dilemma between the two choices, to treat or not to treat. But we're talking about in a place where there's no moral dilemma. For you, the moral dilemma might be, should I be late to class or stop to render aid? That's your moral dilemma. So in Judaism, that's not a moral dilemma. There is no moral dilemma. You need to stop to render aid, even if you're going to lose, you're on the way to major deal and you'll lose uh, you know, $100,000, you still have to stop and do it. You gotta, you, if you're able to save someone's life, you're, you're obligated. And that's based, by the way, on a verse. If you look at number eight, um, it's a verse in Leviticus. The Old Testament says, you shall not stand idly by while your brother's blood is being shed. I am your God. Okay, so the verse states very clearly in number eight that, and that, and we learn from that, we understand and extrapolate from that verse, that is an obligation to rescue. Okay, like I said, very different in Western society. If someone's drowning and you just wave to them and continue on to work, if there's a car accident and you're late for a meeting and you continue, you did nothing wrong. Legally, you did nothing wrong, you can't be prosecuted. Again, you might be an idiot, um, not a nice person, but you, legally there, you did nothing wrong in Western society. And what we're saying is in Judaism, it's a negative, it's, you violated this commandment. The Torah says very clearly, do not stand idly by. So again, and this is not, there's no difference. What's fascinating is in, in Western world, there's always a difference between the professional and non-professional in, from a legal perspective. In Judaism, there's no difference. If you can save that person's life, whether you went to eight years of medical school or you never went to medical school, you don't know anything about medicine, but you happen to um, know the Heimlich maneuver because you, you watched this boring video in high school or whatever it is, so then you're obligated to, to do that, okay, just based on that. So the fact whether you're professional or not is irrelevant. If you're able to save someone's life, or at the least by calling other people to rescue, by calling 911, you're obligated to do that. And if you didn't, you violated this, this Torah law in number eight. So just moving back to, to um, what we were saying before, that Judaism is about obligations. So again, the question is, physicians have obligations, patients have obligations, and society has obligations. Which can Again, not to, not to 
um, dwell on that, but even as a society, that's the question. Are we as a society, the question is not, are, do we have a right to health care? Let's, uh, let's say uh, Obamacare, do we, uh, do we as citizens of this great country have a right to free health care? The question is, do we as a society, in Judaism the question would be posed, do we as a, a society have an obligation to provide health care to the members of our society? So it's not a question of do we have, does a citizen have a right, it's a question of do we have an obligation as a society to provide that for our citizens. So again, it might be viewed as semantics, but there are very important differences there um, between the two. Um, so the injuries, as we're saying, everyone has obligations. So the physician has an obligation, and that's the Torah says, it, it's a verse in Exodus, I quote in number seven, it says very clearly, the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught, he shall surely cause him to be healed. Okay, um, that's a verse in Exodus. Um, and the context there is it's actually talking about in the case of assault and battery, assault and battery um, where someone's assaulting someone else. So part of the Torah obligates the, the uh, perpetrator of the assault to pay for the medical bills of the, of the victim. Okay, so we're not getting into all the details, but what, what we do is extrapolate from that verse is that we, there is an a, a obligation to be healed. Okay, a physician has an obligation. The language there is rapo rape. He shall surely be healed. Um, the Hebrew word for a doctor is a rofe, okay, which um, is understood to mean that the, the physician has an obligation to heal. It's not just a nice thing. It's not just a profession you want to make a lot of money or your mother's pushing you to go to medical school so she can say, my son the doctor or my daughter the doctor. There's a much bigger obligation. We have an obligation um, to heal. Okay, as opposed to, by the way, we know there are other religions who, who say, no, you, we have no right. You could have thought, um, as come from coming purely from a theological perspective, one could have thought, listen, God made this person sick, so what right do we have to heal them? Okay, maybe they have to stay sick. I was in a certain sense, as a physician, if you heal someone, you're going against the will of God, so to speak, because God said this person has cancer. Now, well, I'm going to go and cure the cancer. Right? So, th as we know, for example, Seventh-day Adventists do believe that. They say you're not supposed to have medical care. There are certain religions who do say that. Okay? That's going against the will of God. I was once in a, in a hospital. Um, actually, it was while my wife was giving birth. Um, there was a woman there who was hemorrhaging. She was also giving birth. She started hemorrhaging. And she refused to take a blood transfusion um, because it's against her religion. Okay? So, uh, so clearly Judaism, and, and I think most of the major religions, don't agree with that. And based on this verse in Exodus, very clearly say, no, you're allowed to be, you're, you're not only are you allowed to be healed, you're obligated to be healed. Okay, so the physician has an obligation to heal. That's number one. And secondly, as a patient, you, um, you have an obligation as a patient to, to heal yourself. So like we said before, you can't say, even, even if a person's religious, you can't say, listen, I'm such a, I have such faith in God, God will heal me. That's prohibited in Judaism. You have to go to the doctor. You have to go figure out what's the matter with you, and, and then whatever the course of treatment prescribed by the doctor now becomes obligatory. Because again, um, you are obligated to heal yourself. Now, it's a fascinating thing. And again, in our society, we view, as we'll see, and just to contrast that with, with secular ethics, autonomy, is one of the pillars of secular medical ethics, which means that the patient has a right to decide um, what they want to do. So if the patient says, I don't want to be treated in secular ethics, that overrides everything. The patient tells the doctor, I'm sorry, I'd rather um, not go through this procedure. It's too painful. You know, that then 
that's their prerogative. Okay, I have a, I have a brother who uh, he um, there's a I don't know should know for these things, but there's a procedure called a colonoscopy, where they stick a camera um, through various cavities in your body, and and it's not a very pleasant procedure. Um, so my brother, who actually is a physician, he said he the doctor required him to do it. He said he'd rather die of cancer and not have that procedure. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so the that's something within Judaism, which in Judaism is prohibited, because if you're if the medical if medical professionals tell you you need to do this procedure for your health, then you have to do it. The concept that we have in uh, you know the famous feminist line of our bodies ourselves, we own our bodies. Okay, that's a key point. Judaism doesn't agree with that concept for feminists, for f- females or males. No one owns. We don't. We're not the owner of our bodies. Um, in in religion, at least in Judaism, I can speak for. God gave us, our bodies are sort of on loan to us for 80, 100, 100 years, and therefore part of that obligation is we have to take care of our bodies, whether it means exercising properly, whether it means if you're sick you've got to take care of yourself, eating properly, proper diet, that's all part of a religious obligation. Okay, so it's not, so therefore when you have a question of a prerogative, a patient says, listen doctor, it's great, I have cancer, I'd, I'd rather die peacefully with dignity and not be treated. I don't want to go through chemo where I'm going to lose my hair and I'm going to lose my beard and look and look silly. Okay, so so I'd rather not do that. I'd rather die of cancer. There are people who say that, by the way. Many people who do say, listen, I have cancer. I'd rather not do that. There was a case a year ago here, and I think it was in Texas, of a 16-year-old or 17-year-old uh, girl who said she doesn't want to be treated. Her mom was supporting her. She said, I'd rather not have chemo. Um, and they went, went to the courts because she was a minor. So they actually had the mother arrested for neglect, uh, I don't know exactly what the charge was, but child neglect, um, because technically under the 18, under 18 she was still a minor. Um, but so they forced her to have chemo, I don't know exactly how they did that. So that, um, again, in Judaism, that would, would, Texas many times fits with biblical law. It's one of the good things about living, living in the state of Texas, um, <laughs> as opposed to living in other states. Living in Vermont doesn't always work well. So, uh, so the, the, the point is, what we're saying is it's not the prerogative. Since as a patient, I have an obligation to heal myself if I'm sick. So therefore, it's not the prerogative of the patient to decide, I don't want this care or I do want this care. It's not their decision. The concept of owning your body is wrong. Okay, you don't own your body. Um, God, so to speak, owns your body within religious ethics. And therefore, whatever the... I don't like saying whatever the religion said, that sounds like a cult. But whatever the Torah says, whatever the Torah prescribes as ethical, therefore is going to be assumed that's what you have to do. So if the Torah says you need to treat yourself, you have to be treated, you have to be healed, so then you got to do it. You can't decide not to. Um, of course, we live in a society where religion is a choice, so therefore, obviously, it's going to be your choice at the end of the day. But assuming you ascribe to this particular <coughs> code of ethics, so then the code of ethics says very clearly that it's not your prerogative to decide whether you want to be treated or not. Um, okay, so, so, so there's a few key things we mentioned, which I just want to reiterate. So one, very different than Western society. One is um, there's an obligation to save someone's life. Western society, you have no obligation. Someone's drowning, you can wave to them and go on to class, make, make, be on time for class. In, in Judaism, that's not true. You can't do that. Torah says very clearly, you shall not stand idly by. Um, and as a physician, 
also you don't have a choice. If I am able to heal someone, whether as a physician or as a lay person, if I know the Heimlich, I know, or I went to, like we said, six years of medical school, four years of medical school, where I can save someone's life, I now have an obligation to save that person's life. I can't say, sorry, um, I'm not in the mood today, or I'm, I'm on vacation, okay? Um, so, so this leads us to number 10. Any questions before we move on? Okay, so number 10, which is, like we said, the, one of the pillars of secular medical ethics is autonomy, okay? And that has become, as a patani, has become absolute, taking precedence over all other values, including life. Um, in secular medical ethics today, autonomy, has, and uh, Professor Lundstroff will speak about it more next, on Thursday, but autonomy overrides more or less every other value, and even though there are other pillars of ethics, autonomy rules. Because whatever the patient says, the patient um, gets. Okay, so if the patient decides, I don't want this treatment, this is not good for me, or you, you present, um, the, the physician presents two choices to the patient. These are two forms of treatment. The patient is the one that's gonna decide um, which form of treatment they should continue with, not the physician. Um, so, so when you're looking at it from a paternalistic view, it used to be, and Shelley can attest to this, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, Many times the doctor will tell the patient, this is what needs to be done. The doctor wouldn't present necessarily all, well, we have six options here, and you could choose this one or that one. Is that true? That changed in that sense over the last oh, 30? It's, it's changed. Uh, really, it's the patient's attitudes have changed in the sense that um, patients, some of them want to be involved in the decision. They come with a lot of information to any medical encounter with right, physicians. Well, that, that's another problem today where we have internet so we're all right. so informed by the internet because I googled you know this disease that I have and you and you're getting information from Wikipedia so so the patient says listen what do you doctor doesn't know more than I do right uh, he, he also got it from Wikipedia where they think he got his information so therefore the patient feels like they are able to make that decision almost as well as the doctor it's a major problem because patients really don't know a hell of a lot Doctors don't know a hell of a lot either. We know more than patients, in part because we have a lot more experience. For example, take informed consent. You're going to have an operation that has a list of complications, including stroke, blah, blah, blah. The patient has no concept of what a stroke is like, how devastating it really is. They may have a relevant, but, you know, if I'm reading that, I say, whoa, a stroke? <laughs> but they may have no concept of it. They'll also pick on something you can have a drug reaction or. They have no concept that it's a one in a ten million chance, but it's on there because a lawyer wrote that. They have no context in which to make judgments. And it's, it's a bit problematic. There are so many more choices today. Patients feel compelled to be involved in the decision making. And it's particularly contentious when there are mental health issues. Because then you may have a patient that doesn't really have the mental capacity to make the decision and is dealing in a, in a universe that's completely not, not connected to what's really going on in front of them. And you, that's where it gets really difficult. You're not sure whether the patient's comprehension is all there. So that there were so many elements. And they, just to contrast, in the old days, we would just tell patients, this is the what only doing. choice. Not because, it, not because that was one I chose, because there was only one choice. <laughs> this is the choice. You know, take it or leave it. Yeah. Like in the case of someone not being like mentally sound uh -huh. in like secular ethics, would that be like non autonomous then? Like, it can't. It's a whole su subject unto itself. Before, you used when people were 
had mental health issues and the, and the physicians and the mental health community felt they weren't capable of making the decisions, you would hospitalize them. You could commit them, whether they wanted to go or not. Now you can still do that, but it's extremely hard to do. So people who had the right condition, you hospitalize them, put them on medication, then you could talk to them about some medical problem they're having, you know, they can make an informed decision whether they're no longer hallucinating or whatever. Nowadays, particularly mental health issues, is a much more of a revolving door. They may commit crimes, and police, because they have mental health issues, they can't arrest them. But they refer them to psychiatrists. Psychiatrists can't commit them to a hospital, so they can't really treat them. It's a major, major problem. It's the whole issue of autonomy and mental health issues. Autonomy in everyday medicine is, while it's true, it's not that much of a problem, because people Look, when you say, look, here are your four options or six options, whatever, you decide. Unless they pick something really off the wall and say, well, fine. You know, it's not like I have all the wisdom in the world. Or, for example... Um, what is also, I just want to defer with you on a little point, which is when you're presenting those six options, you have to legally, many times, present, give them their options. Because if you didn't, you have to cover your butt, so to speak. Well, Meaning, so you're, so you're not necessarily presenting them as what's best for the patient. You might know that this option B is best for the patient, but you're still going to have to present all six yes, options. Yes, you will. There aren't because that many situations nowadays where one option is so clearly better than the other. For example, take a hernia. A hernia. It's one of those things for which there is no treatment except surgery. You have surgery, you cannot have surgery. You want to walk around with this hernia, go for it. But that's it. You're going to have to have surgery or you're walk around with this hernia. There's no nothing. But for other illnesses are often are several choices. Well, hey, breast cancer, you may have read breast cancer. There's a lot of different choices. It's not clear one is all that much better than others. For example, some people may really have attachment to their breasts and don't want to have mastectomies. Other women say, well, I don't care. Is that all, that's better for me? Lop them both off for all I care. You know, that, that's where autonomy plays a role. But generally speaking, it's not a major problem until you get into tough, tough choices where there's no clear-cut answer and everybody's got an opinion. And that's when the patient autonomy often comes into play. I don't know if that's... Right. So, so yeah, so autonomy, like we're saying, in secular ethics, it's the patient who gets to decide. In Judaism, it's we, not that we like doctors more than patients, but since they're the professionals and they know what is the best form of treatment, so assuming, again, if, if the, there is autonomy, it does play a role, even with the Jewish ethics, which is if it's a neutral decision, like we're saying. The doctor says it's, you know, let's say take breast cancer. If you have the vasectomy, you're gonna, you're going to, uh, there's 50% chance of healing, and if you do this other form of treatment, chemo, say 50%. So right. that's a neutral decision. So right. there, of course, we let the patient make the decision. But the doctor's saying clearly, medically, there's a 70% chance of survival with a uh, mastectomy and only a 20% chance, uh, you know, a 20% chance of survival with the chemo. So then Judaism will say you have to go with the doctor. Because again, we err always, you have to go with the side of life. Because saving, as we're saying, treating yourself is obligatory. Doing what's best for your health is obligatory. So therefore, if the physician says choice A is, is the better choice, again, obviously, if it's a negligible number of one's, you know, 22% one, 20, 19% one act, that's negligible. But I'm saying when there's a clear difference, this choice A is gonna save your life much better, much better way, or much better chance of saving your life than choice B, and 
in Jewish ethics, you're obligated to go with choice A. If, again, if it's a neutral decision, so then, of course, patient autonomy, in that case, well, you're saying many of the cases are neutral. Yes. Most cases are neutral, but again, when you get to the nitty-gritty ethical dilemmas, that's where, that's when you know, it's not. Or, for example, when it gets to a woman who's pregnant who has cancer, do we, if you do chemo, you're risking the baby, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to have an abortion, things like that. That's where it gets, can get complicated in cases like that, which maybe we'll touch on some. So, so again, a key difference between Jewish medical ethics or is this concept of autonomy only exists within Jewish medical ethics when you're dealing with a neutral, with a neutral question, okay, as opposed to, um, as opposed to in secular ethics where autonomy, the patient's prerogative is always going to win out in almost all the cases. Another key difference, um, number eleven here, is, and this is a major, major difference between, uh, I believe in today's society, between religious, many religious ethics, and specifically Jewish medical ethics, and secular ethics, is the issue of quality of life. Again, we're used to living in this great country where it's all about quality of life. Everything in our lives are decided by, you know, how productive a person is in society, right, how much money they're making, um, right, what they're, again, what they're doing, what their goals are in life. So if you have someone and it's very, I'm sure you've discussed it in the context of Nazi, med- Nazi medicine, um, when you have someone who is not productive to society or is viewed as not productive, or someone has uh, mental deficiencies um, where they're viewed as they can't be productive for society, so then even, uh, I don't want to compare us to, to Germany in the past, but even in our society, we don't view that as a life. A person doesn't have a, a real life. You know, they're stuck, in, they're paraplegic, they're in a wheelchair, they're on a ventilator. Um, so the quality of life um, is an overriding factor in many of our ethical decisions today and many of our decisions as patients and as physicians. Okay, physician sees a patient where he knows he might be able to, to allow the patient to live, but this patient's going to be in, a, in have poor quality of life for the rest of their life. So is it worth, do we save that patient um, save their life or, or just not treat them in situations like that. So, so that's where this question comes up, quality of life versus value of life. In Jewish law, um, value of life, life in itself is of infinite value. And therefore, quality of life is almost, almost as we'll see, irrelevant. If someone is alive, even if they're alive for another five minutes, um, and their, their quality of life clearly is not that good, in that situation, most of those type of situations where someone's terminally ill, that, that's irrelevant. If you kill that person, or if you mur- if you kill them, it's it's capital murder like any other murder. It's, it's irrelevant whether you kill a 95-year-old person on a ventilator, um, or uh, you know a three-week-old infant who has a whole healthy life in front of them. As far as when l- if you look at life, every second of life is of infinite value, and and that all the, whatever is on that spectrum is irrelevant. Okay, so quality of life almost never plays a role. We'll see there are some exceptions, but very rarely play a role um, in when it comes to making medical ethics decisions um, within Jewish ethics. Okay, so, so number one, if I put a few bullet points here, number one is life itself is the primary value. So just mm-hmm. life. Quality is not the issue. The issue is life itself. The person, can we save this person's life? Yes. Um, just because they're, they're going to be in a wheelchair the rest of life? Is that a reason not to save a life? No. Okay, life overrides everything except the big three. And within Jewish law, life is so 
primary um, within Jewish ethics that they're, they're, you're allowed to violate any law um, in any biblical law. So that we have in, in, in the Old Testament, we say there are 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments um, if you're Jewish. Um, so 613 commandments. Out of those, so the Jewish ethics says, you can violate any one of those, 610 of them, to save a life. Okay, there's no concept. Everything is thrown out the window. Every one of the commandments, um, positive or negative commandments within the Old Testament is irrelevant when it comes to a p- saving a person's life. That means if by performing that commandment, somehow that would in any which way endanger your life. So not only are you exempt from doing the commandment, you're prohibited from doing the commandment because you can't do a commandment within any, which in any which way endangers your life. Okay, that's how far, that's how primary life is within Jewish ethics. Um, now there, there are, the exception to that is what's known as the big three which is murder, um, which means th- to say that if someone puts a gun to your head, says kill this person or I'll kill you, so you cannot kill that person in order to save, even to save your own life. Okay, so again, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, um, you know, go into 7-Eleven and steal something, so and you're, you have to go into 7-Eleven, you're obligated to do that now. So your friend uh, says, if you don't, you know, shoplift in 7-Eleven, it's one of the Ten Commandments, to shall not steal, I'm going to ki- I'm going to uh, kill you. So you're now obligated to shoplift, as we're saying in Jewish ethics, because you, if you don't shoplift, you're endangering your life. If you don't steal, in this case, you're going to endanger your life. So, but if someone says, "Kill this person," or "I'm going to kill you," so then you cannot even save your life. You cannot commit murder to even to save your life. That's number one. So that's exception number one. Exception number two is um, paganism, um, idolatry. That means worshiping. Uh, pagan gods, so to speak, okay, um, which I'm not going to get into the details here, not a theological class, but that means if someone puts a gun to you and says, worship this pagan god, um, or else I'll kill you, you cannot worship that god within Judaism. Number three is, is actually some sexual prohibitions, including adultery, that means if someone puts a gun to you and says, sleep with this married woman, um, you have to let yourself be killed before sleeping. Okay, take note of that. That's an important one. Um, okay, so those are the three exceptions. But otherwise, um, it's very clear that primary, the primacy of life within Judaism is so clear that life overrides everything else besides these three things. Okay, and like we mentioned before, just as an example, the Talmud discusses where someone, uh, theoretical case, obviously, I hope, someone throws a child off a roof, um, and the child is coming down, it's a cement floor, it's 23 stories up, the child's gonna hit the, the pavement. And you come outside with a sword, okay, and you, you, ca- you impale the child on your sword. Okay, so the child was going to die within six seconds before, six seconds off the floor, three seconds off the floor. All I did was catch it with my sword. Okay, but says, says the Talmud, you're, you're tried for capital murder. Even though that child was going to die in the next six seconds, we try you for capital murder. Why? Because if you believe, again, every second of life, is of infinite value, so you took away six seconds of this child's life, even though clearly there was no quality of life. It was, you know, it was going to hit the pavement in six seconds, but it had six seconds more of life. That means you foreshortened this child's life by six seconds. That's a capital crime. Because, again, one second of life is of infinite value. Infinity is, can't be measured. Sorry, what were you saying? Question? Oh, I was just um, going to ask about things like, they were talking about in like nutrition, like um, 
like smoking or like obesity and things like that, but of course that's gonna be a crime. Right, so well, it's not of course, not as simple as you're making, but, but technically speaking, if it's very clear, which I believe it is today, that smoking is dangerous, for, is clearly causes cancer and emphysema and whatever else it says on the side, uh, 20 other things that it can cause, and those studies are, are proven, which they are today, so then it's, it would be, according to Jewish law, prohibited to smoke. Um, the question is what happens if, you know, where do you draw the line? Because, you know, last week they came out that hot dogs are carcinogens, and that means it's, is it prohibited according to Jewish law to eat a hot dog? No, I still, I still eat a hot dog. Um, I can't control myself. <laughs> but uh, right, so where do you draw the line? Um, meaning, how far do you take it? Today, there's a study saying everything is dangerous. Today, right, barbecue. I mean, is there's a so so you have to so there are gray areas. Obviously, it has to be a a clear risk to your life in order for to to say that you you can't do that. Okay, but there are gray areas, obviously. So. Um, uh, Robert Grossman, we have talked in this class about the concept of junk science. Uh, Shelley raised a good point that. For tobacco abuse, for example, it's clear it's dangerous to your life. Once you get into other things, we talked about climate change, but even obesity to a certain sense, or like this nonsense with this uh, hot dog stuff, that science is far from settled. So, and, and where it is settled, you have an obligation. Where it's not settled, it's not so much. I mean, here you have a traditional Jewish man saying, I'm going to keep eating hot dogs. <laughs> and it's not because he's ignorant of science. But the science is far from settled. Right. So but I'm how do you decide when science is settled? That's a tough question. <laughs> so I think, listen, it has to be clear. For example, take smoking. It's interesting, the, the Surgeon General report, the original report was in 1963. 64. 64. So uh, when it originally came out, the rabbis at the time were asked this question, can uh, a lot of the Jewish at the time and were asked for their response. And they said, listen, it's still not 100% proven, just as we're saying, just because a certain general reported it doesn't mean it's proven. Today, now we're, you know, almost 45 years later, more, almost 50 years later, so we're, we are, uh, clearly there's every, every rabbi in the world will tell you today that it's prohibited to smoke. Um, so it's, once it was, like we're saying, it's a clear thing where there's no gray areas, it's gonna be prohibited. But there are a lot of gray areas. Well, let's even, like you said, what about nutrition? What about, does that mean I have to stop eating meat? What about exercise? Am I obligated to exercise three hours a day because studies show that you live longer? So obviously there's, you know, you can't, there has to be, a, there, there's also what's, there's proactive and there's things that endanger your life, uh, meaning by doing the action. So, so what we're talking about is you can't do things um, which clearly endanger your life. That doesn't mean I'm obligated to exercise for six hours a day because it will prolong my life, that's different. Okay. If I'm ill, we're saying I have an obligation to treat my illness if the illness is gonna kill me. But if you're a healthy human being, we don't say you have to proactively do things which will lend life. Yeah, I think the key thing is what I said, you ask a rabbi. You get a painful rabbi who studies the issue and is trying to determine exactly the question you're asking. How do you know when the science is settled? Mm -hmm. So in 64, the rabbi said, well, you know, it's really not, in his judgment, it's really not settled. And he's not just giving, He's not going to read the New York Times to give you an opinion. From He's going to really consider the issue. Right, so one of the important thing, point Charlie's making, Dr. Rubenfeld, is that the, the rabbi can't make a decision. Ethicists can't make a decision without knowing the facts. Right. That's a key point. Those rabbis or any ethicist has no, has no, 
he, he has no right to make a medical decision. Now, that's a very important point, which you're pointing out, which I should have said before, which is ethicists in any ethics committee, in any hospital, or any uh, religious ethicist is not making medical decisions. That's up to science and to, to physicians to make those decisions. What they can do is once the facts are presented to them um, and the facts are ascertained, now, and there's a dilemma here, should we say this is prohibited? Should we do the surgery or should we not do the surgery? Which is a better course of treatment um, based on what the physicians are saying. It's not for the ethicists to decide which is a better course of treatment. They could say, listen, this physician is saying these are the numbers, 60% with this one, of course. That's where the ethicist comes in. It's only after the, the facts, the medical facts are ascertained is when the physician, but when the ethicist can play a role. That's a very important uh, So in, in 64, you might say we don't have the science, but you fast forward 20 years, where smoking clearly contributes to death. I think the moral dilemma is evident, and then the rabbi is pretty straightforward in his answer that since it's a threat to your life, you shouldn't smoke. Oh, marijuana is a whole different thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and rabbis deal with marijuana, too. So. Um, okay, I'm now personally so, <laughs> so now, uh, the, la the last point, which is, I just want to hark on for a second here in number 11, which is, Money, unfortunately, we live in a society where money plays a key role in many ethical decisions because, especially when you deal with healthcare, where it becomes an issue of, for a hospital, um, like we're saying, someone's on a ventilator, there's not enough beds in the hospital, there are more patients coming in, or they want a part of the hospitals, we have to keep our budget up. So if this guy's just staying on a ventilator, we're only making $2,000 a day, as opposed to if we empty up a bed, this patient's bed, we're going to be able to bring in a new patient who we're going to be making $25,000 a day from the insurance companies. So I don't want to sound crude, but uh, unfortunately, that does play a role. It's not just that we want to make money. It's also there's a question of triage. Obviously, we have limited funds. The hospital has limited funds. Society as a whole has limited funds. That's part of the whole debate with, with Obamacare, right? How much to, should we provide as a society to our citizens? How much can we provide? Obviously, there's, it's, there's limitations. So money um, <coughs> and budgetary concerns always plays a role in hospital decisions and medical decisions many times, um, and including on ethics committees. Um, and it's unfortunate, but that's the bottom line. Um, many of the decisions, and I don't know if Shelley would agree with me on this, but let's say the whole decision of end of life, which we're going to discuss maybe uh, next time we come, um, end of life decisions, what's the end of life? What's the point of death? Is it cessation of brain function, cessation of heart function? Obviously, if you say cessation of brain function, so then the person's dying a lot earlier, we're going to save a lot of money in our society because that means they're declared dead once their brain stops functioning. Their heart can still function for another two years on a ventilator, could still be pumping. So clearly, we're going to get people out of the hospitals quicker and bury them, and life goes on. So we're going to be saving a lot of money. So that decision, and again, I don't know if Shelley would agree, might be based some of it might be looked at, especially from a, the hospital's perspective or the insurance company's perspective, based on not only the principles of ethics, but also money plays a key role. Um, and again, it's not, not to, it's not just money, it's, it's a question of triage. We need to decide what's more important, to save a person, a younger person, healthy person, or to keep this person on a ventilator for another year or six months or two years. In Judaism, it also, again, doesn't really, money should never play a role. Um, of course, you have issues of triage, but, but uh, the fa if something is murder, meaning if a person, let's say, take that as an example, if a person is still alive, 
um, just because, like we said before, they don't have quality of life, and we might uh, just want to say, let's get them out of the hospital because we need the bed. That should never play a role in any in ethical decision um, in, ha- in how to treat the patient because, uh, because again, quality of life is irrelevant. Um, so therefore, almost never will, will monetary aspects um, help inform that decision any which way. I think it's important to emphasize that. I'll give you a contrasting case. When I was a relatively young doctor in the 1980s, I had a woman who came from Montgomery County. She came, it was unclear what her diagnosis was. Bottom line, she had Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, where it's a progressive degenerative neurological disease. And it's primarily a motor disease, which means you gradually lose all your motor function. Mentally, you're still intact. First, you can't walk, can't move your arms, can't speak, can't even blink your eyes, and you're lying there. But you know exactly what's going on. But you have no motor function. Back then, Medicare ran out after six months, unlike now. She was in for two and a half years. No one ever came to me saying, you need to get rid of this lady. She's costing us a fortune. Not only were they not going to make more money from having someone else in their bed, they were getting no money. It was all going out. They were just paying for her care. She wasn't even a resident of Harris County. That's 30-some-odd years ago. Now, every insurance company and hospitals have utilization review committees. They want to know, the instant you order something, what the result of that test is and what you're going to do about it. God forbid you shouldn't do something around a patient in the hospital for an extra day, and that costs money. This idea of cost is totally institutionalized. So much more money is being spent now, and there's so much more concern about how much we're spending. So this issue is not a trivial issue. It's a major, major issue. Remember I showed you the good, the bad, and the ugly? That's what they're talking about. That's what it's all about. Who's going to get shot? Who's going to get the pot of gold? So this is a big, big issue. And this rabbi goes, Judaism, that's... This is the patient in front of us. Let's figure out what the best thing is to do, not what the least expensive thing is to do. So while not, well, I think it's fair to say Judaism no. is not immune to this totally. Yes, no, no one, it's not possible to be but immune to that's it. not their starting point. Right. So, like I said, for many hospitals, I've dealt with ethics committees and cases where it was no question I, I sat in committee meetings, not as a committee member, but because I was consulted by the family where the hospital wanted to push the patient out because they felt like, you know, there's no point. We can't do anything for him anymore. It's not going to be healed. Just let him go home and die. Go to a, a what's it called? Hospice. Hospice, right. Send him to hospice or send him to another hospital because this hospital wanted to, and it was clearly based in a money decision. And uh, it's only after much fighting, and sometimes you lose the battle, sometimes you don't, where we fought them from a legal, legally, from an ethical perspective, that they can't get rid of the patient, that they finally agree, unbegrudgingly, to, uh, to keep the patient in the hospital. Because money, unfortunately, does play a role as in, in the medical profession, just like it does in any other profession. And the hospital has to make their budget, and they have, to, they have quotas, they have to make a certain amount of money per month to cover their budget. So, it's, so it is a key factor um, in decisions today. So just because I don't, we're out of time, but I, I did put the number 12, some examples, as we're going to talk about maybe down the line, where um, Jewish medical ethics differs, differs very clearly from secular ethics. Um, just a number of those was euthanasia, as we mentioned, but we're going to talk about it more, I believe, uh, next Tuesday. 
And next Tuesday, you and uh, Professor uh, Lundstraw will be here together. That following Thursday, there'll be a lecture about uh, Nazi propaganda films. But they okay. back together again. So okay. The, uh, so all these, there's a lot of key differences here. Um, cosmetic surgery, autopsy, disclosure of information, as we mentioned. So there, there are things that, uh, just, just to mention, because I don't know if we're going to get to cosmetic surgery, because we're probably going to talk about end of life, beginning of life issues. That's just an interesting one. Um, just in, in, it's important to know not everything doctors do are healing. As we discussed, the, the main issue we're dealing with, at least in, in religious ethics, is you have an obligation as a physician to heal someone. You have an obligation as a patient to be healed. But let's say you're not sick, okay, you just want bigger boobs, okay, or, or you, you, you want smaller body parts or bigger, or you, have, you, have, you want a nose job done. Right. So there's no, there's, there's no nothing ill. Right? Well, why are you Jewish nose Right, exactly. Face. So there's no obligation there, clearly. It's obviously it's just a, a, there you're talking about medical cases where um, there is no obligation to be healed. There's no part. In, there's no obligation on the physician's part to heal the patient because there's nothing wrong. Obviously, unless the person is deformed to the extent where there's a psychological effect at something else. So that's an example where, in that case, Judaism will say you can't take a risk. Um, if there's a risk involved in that surgery, which I'm not saying there is, depending on what the cosmetic surgery is and what's involved, but if there's a risk in that surgery where it's not for healing purposes, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. As opposed to in our society, again, it's patient autonomy. If uh, this girl from Bel Air wants, at 16, she got her sweet 16th birthday present to have a to have a plastic surgery, so she's going to do it whether there's a risk or not. Right? It's irrelevant. The doctor does it for whether there's a risk involved or not. Not to pick on Bel Air. Anyone listen to Bel Air? Okay. So so uh, so the point is that that's a, just an example. But there, as we'll um, in the following weeks, we'll discuss um, some case studies of various examples of these things where. There's a very clear difference between secular ethics and religious ethics when it comes to a lot of these moral dilemmas. You have been listening to the MP3 project from the Jewish Ethics Institute. For a complete selection of our lectures, please visit our website at j-ethics.org. Shalom. Shalom.